Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Hello, everyone. I am sitting here with my friend Sergio. Sergio is a um, Dharma facilitator at a local Buddhist temple, and he's also a chaplain. And I really brought him on to talk about chaplaincy because I think a lot of people don't know what that is. And there actually is a movement within Buddhism for Buddhist chaplains. And so I wanted to bring him on to talk about that and to talk about why he became a chaplain and how all that unfolded. Hmm. Sergio, can you say hello? Hello, I'm very happy to be here with you, Daniel. It's so good to um, see you again, and um, always a pleasure talking to you. All right, so um, I think, first of all, I'll talk about the Buddhist concept of right livelihood, because some people tend to think that take an extreme view of that part of the Buddhist path. So then they think, oh, I can't do any job. I better be a teacher or a yoga instructor or a librarian or a chaplain. Sometimes people definitely think that way. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you if part of your decision to become a chaplain was rooted in, I've got to have right livelihood. I think that that's part of it. Um, however, I'm, I'm with you on this idea that um, you don't have to go live in a cave or just give up everything in order to have the right livelihood. I always understood right livelihood a little bit more liberally. And for me, it was as long as I am earning my livelihood in a way that is not harming and hopefully in some way contributing to the benefit of other sentient beings, then it's okay. And the job that I had before um, allowed me to feel that way. I was, I was pretty happy in terms of right livelihood. Um, so, but yes, uh, I definitely feel a great sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in terms of right livelihood with what I'm doing now. Okay. Yeah. I've got this friend who works in it and he works for financial companies and he's kind of like, how can I ever do right livelihood in my job? I mm. feel like I'm doing bad every day. Well, and, and I told him just go to work and be nice to the people you work with mm -hmm. and, and just be a pleasant person. And yeah. that can be right livelihood too. If you're just helping create harmony. I think that's mm -hmm. what it's about. And I think with livelihood, what we really want to think about is not having careers where we're spending eight hours a day making the world a worse place and creating disharmony and yeah, just absolutely. feeling bad all the time. So I think anytime we have rigid views about things, we are in dangerous ground. Um, I remember a few years ago, my favorite story about right livelihood actually is not Buddhist. It's Pope Francis, um, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, he made a lot of waves because I don't know if it was during a sermon or some kind of address to his people. He said something to the effect of uh, people who work in the uh, weapons industry cannot be Christian. Um, and it, like this is an actual headline that I saw in the newspaper, an actual newspaper. I couldn't believe it, but he actually said that. And that was, you know, I thought, well, that's right livelihood, right? Because Ultimately, I suppose uh, weapons end up harming people. So I guess you could make that argument. But I did not say that. The Pope did. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> well, that's heavy. I wonder if any, if a lot of Catholics quit their jobs. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Think so. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
this is a very different Pope. So um, I think he says a lot of things that rattle people. Mm -hmm. So um, I know long ago your career was working for Hallmark, mm -hmm. a mainly a greeting card company, but they do other things, right? Mm -hmm. That's located here in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty lucrative career. Mm -hmm. And one day you had to leave that job. And I remember my memory of this is Karen Mason Miller had a Zen retreat mm -hmm. and you were going to come there mm -hmm. and keep the time on that retreat and you didn't show up. That's right. And everybody was like, why isn't he here? That's weird. And then the second day of the retreat, you still didn't show up. So mm. we kind of knew you weren't going to. Yeah. So um, if you're willing to walk me through the path that involved leaving your previous job, I would love to hear about that. Sure. Thank you for asking. Um, <clears throat> I was very happy uh, at Hallmark Cards for many years, I think uh, a little bit over 12 years. And I worked in greetings. I worked as an uh, editorial director and creative strategist. So the work that I did was actually quite rewarding. It was very creative. I got to work with a lot of artists and writers and designers and really wonderful top-notch people. Um, and for many years, it was a very satisfying job. But I think that what happened was toward the end, I was getting a little bit burned out. Um, I was tr wanting to do things that were not available to me or opportunities that were not presenting themselves for me. Um, and at the same time, I was experiencing, I think, um, with the burnout, a, a, a great deal of depression and anxiety. Um, and ultimately, um, that uh, I ended up having a pretty severe episode of uh, depression and anxiety, and uh, this happened as I was returning from the Parliament of the World's Religions, which was a super high, high, if, if you can think of it that way. It was an experience like no other where I was with thousands of other people from all over the world, from different religious traditions, just feeling so, um, so amazingly seen and understood and also being exposed to so many different ways of seeing in the world. There was a lot of meaning making. It was very fulfilling and gratifying. And then I came back from that really high high to the really low low of the place where I was feeling really burned out. And that was the crash, really. And it actually happened around this time of year. It was, um, I think it was October 23rd. Um, so this time of year for the last four or five years, for the last four years has been kind of it gets a little heavy. I get a lot of SAD. Um, mm -hmm. And that's when I decided I need to change gears. And um, that's that's what led to ultimately me leaving my job. <laughs> okay. So although it was a very good job and you mm -hmm. had a position you liked and it was pretty secure, um, you just had to leave because it wasn't fulfilling your needs. Yeah. And that now your needs are getting met in your career? Uh, I would say so. I, I also just want to say that at the time that I left, I had a really wonderful manager who understood what I was going through, who tried her best to help me, but you know, she could only do so much. And she helped me to see that perhaps it was time to leave. Um, she didn't suggest that to me, but she certainly affirmed my uh, suspicion that it was time for me to leave. Um, and that was a really good lesson, uh, even looking back, you know, in, in attachment. Um, I, I had made myself to this idea that, um, that I was going to retire from Hallmark, um, that I would be there for another 20, 30 years, who knows. Um, and then to all of a sudden realize, oh, no, that's, uh, that's also impermanent, as everything mm -hmm. else is, um, was kind of big. And then um, as I left, I also was very supported by my partner, Emily, who um, 
was with me through the whole ordeal. Um, and she was the one that said, hey, you've been talking about chaplaincy, and there's this program here in Kansas City at St. Luke's um, where you could be trained and educated um, in chaplaincy. And she was the one that pointed me in that direction. Um, so thanks to her, I have now for the past three years been at St. Luke's um, doing this work of spiritual care and clinical pastoral education. And I would definitely say that, um, that I feel very fulfilled um, and that um, I feel I'm in the right place. Okay. So, and um, if you don't mind my asking, was this a very expensive program to get through? Um, well, this is a tricky question because the program itself is not very expensive, but it is it is an education. So, um, and it, it's it's a really fascinating program because it's both classroom and um, floor work. So. You are in the classroom uh, learning and studying and reading and um, at the, and writing a lot. And at the same time, half of your time, you're, um, you're doing chaplaincy work. You're doing work with patients and families and staff. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a work-study program. So you're working and studying. Um, and so as an intern, you, you do pay your uh, tuition. As a resident, um, it's actually a paid position. Um, so... I, I'm a second year resident now. I've been in residency for two years. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what I've been doing. So, but there is tuition involved with this program. Okay. So maybe more than the actual cost is you're not going to be able to have a job for a year because you're <laughs> doing this unpaid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you're more... an intern, if you're an intern, you're not paid. If you're a mm -hmm. resident, you do receive payment. It's um, very modest. Um, but uh, yeah, it is a, it, it's definitely a lifestyle adjustment. Are you the only Buddhist chaplain in the hospital? I am uh, at St. Luke's. I am the only Buddhist. Um, I I always try to kind of qualify the the nomenclature. I'm not a Buddhist chaplain. I'm a chaplain, and I'm a Buddhist. Um, but I am a chaplain who serves people of all traditions. Um, so a lot of times, if I say or if people think of me as a Buddhist chaplain, then the assumption is that I only care for Buddhist patients. Um, but I care for Buddhist patients and for anybody else um, who uh, needs uh, spiritual care and support. So, um, but yes, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a chaplain. Okay. I, I would think if your job was only to care for Buddhist patients, you probably couldn't justify having a full-time job. Absolutely. So not here in Kansas City, <laughs> at least. Right. So um, do you, have you met other Buddhist chaplains though? Yes. Um, not a, uh, not here in Kansas City. We've met online. Um, there are other parts of the country where there are um, specifically uh, or, or programs that are specifically designed for Buddhist chaplaincy. Upaya Center has an amazing chaplaincy program with Roshi Joan Halifax. Um, I think I think there's a, a, a Maitripa College has also a chaplaincy program. Um, but those are, you know, in New Mexico and on the coast. So um, I, they're not really anywhere near here. Um, so I've, I've talked to people who are Buddhist chaplains um, in other places, but I haven't really met anyone here in town. Um, with the exception of Mary Stanford, who is the wife of Lama Chuck Stanford. And she was the first chaplain that I met, actually. Um, and she was the one that um, that I spoke to a lot and that mentored me a little bit and that let me see that, oh, there is a possibility for ministry and spiritual work with people uh, outside of the Christian context. So that was really exciting for me. 
So I, th I think that's the only other Buddhist chaplain I've met, probably. Okay. I think... I think I know two other ones that live in Kansas City, but I'm not going to drop their names in the podcast just in okay. case. I don't know. How, Maybe you can tell me later. I don't know how out they are, but I think I know two of them. But cool. Um, cool. I think that, and I was going to ask you if you knew about Roshi Joan Halifax, but yes. I think she's a really prominent Zen teacher. She's but, amazing. Um, I think that is sort of as Buddhism has come to the West and people are going to these teacher training programs and sometimes they're quite expensive and time consuming. And then yeah. there's not really a job at the end of that. So I think that that is why sometimes chaplaincy has been coupled to that because it yeah. does seem like it kind of fits very well. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, um, Zen Buddhism in Japan has largely been, they say has largely been subsumed by, uh, doing funerals. That's the main thing Zen teachers do in Japan, which, wow. of course, that's not what we do here. We don't yeah. see a lot of Buddhist funerals here. Even Buddhists don't usually have Buddhist funerals here. But that is a vast majority of what Zen mm -hmm. teachers do in Japan is conduct funerals because even non-religious people in Japan have Buddhist funerals because that's just what they do there. Yeah. So, um, okay, so... I know what a chaplain is, but I think I've done a disservice to our listeners. I want to ask you to explain to them exactly mm. what a chaplain is and what a chaplain does. Okay, thank you. I think it's uh, helpful to start out by saying what a chaplain isn't. Um, and even within the, the hospital, even within our own field, oftentimes there's a misunderstanding. I often will get a call from a nurse who will say, hey, can you come pray for this family because their loved one just died? And, um, of course, I go and do that. But my internal response is, it's too late. Um, a chaplain should be called early on because we can pre be providing spiritual care, emotional support for this family and for this patient throughout the whole process. So we do a whole lot more than pray for people. Um, and, uh, and so it's important to start out with that. What we do, um, one of the ways that I like to synthesize it when I'm asked what I do is I'm a professional listener. Um, what I am trained in is uh, empathic listening, reflective listening, therapeutic listening, um, and that is how to how to carry a story with someone and how to hold that space for that person um, to really uh, reveal unto themselves what it is that they're experiencing, what it is that they need, how they are supported or not supported throughout this time. And as a chaplain in a hospital, we meet people with in a very um, crucial time of their life. Number one, they're not in their home. So there's an element of um, being um, kind of out of your own turf, out of your own territory. Um, number two, they, they don't have a lot of control. They're giving up a lot of control by being in the hospital. They're subjected to, you know, all kinds of poking and prodding. Uh, nobody wants to be there. Uh, it's not a place where people look forward to being. And so when I enter the room, um, my priority is to make this person, help this person feel safe and comfortable in my presence uh, and then most of all, listened to and cared for. Um, so what we do is we listen, um, we do a spiritual assessment. Based on the assessment that we make of this person, we provide suitable interventions. And these interventions could be, you know, it could be anything from art therapy to, to uh, um, life uh, history sort of thing. Um, uh, there's a number of things you can do. And then you look for outcomes. How has this patient 
um, uh, progressed in their stay here emotionally. And we're very fortunate at the hospital where I work that we have a, a philosophy of caring for the whole person. Um, so when a patient comes in to our hospital, we're not just looking at a body. We're also looking at, at a person that has uh, emotional, spiritual, and psychological needs. Um, and um, so we care for the whole person, and that's where the chaplain comes in. One of my favorite um, st stories to tell is um, I once came to visit a patient who was he was pretty grumpy. He was very unhappy. And I walked in, and the nurse said, oh, here's the chaplain um, to see you. And he looks at me, and he says, oh, you're probably here to Bible thump me, aren't you? And I just looked at him and I smiled and I said, I don't even read the Bible, dude. <laughs> and uh, kind of threw him off a little bit and said, wait, what? And so that uh, kind of opened up the door for me to sit down. And we ended up visiting for about an hour. And um, he was in a better place uh, after that visit. I did not fix anything. I did not um, really um, make it, you know, I didn't heal anything. What I did was to be present, to be to want to be there and to listen attentively and um, empathically. And that's, um, in a nutshell, what we do. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask, not to get too deeply into the minutiae, but what's the difference between a chaplain and, like, a hospice volunteer? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of a big difference. A professional chaplain is someone who has gone through um, – a certain program of studies and training. There is an association of clinical pastoral education that is a national, and in some in, in some ways it's also international. But it's an organization that creates the curriculum and the standards and the, um, and the for, for what a chapel, professional chaplain should be able to do. And then there's also board certification. So there are several different um, certifying uh, uh, bodies, um, and this is uh, how you go about becoming and, and performing as a professional chaplain. Um, but a lot of hospitals and a lot of hospice agencies and a lot of healthcare uh, agencies also um, make use of volunteers. Um, and um, sometimes these can be pastors in the community or um, just, um, you know, at St. Luke's, for instance, we have a, a group of volunteers who are Eucharistic ministers who take communion to our Catholic patients. Um, and so these are people who are uh, not have not been trained or, or educated in to the same degree, but but are able to provide certain things and certain um, very valuable um, services for our uh, patients. Um, hospice is a slightly different situation, um, of course. And um, at St. Luke's, we don't have hospice care in the building, but we do have a hospice house that is a St. Luke's hospice house, and there are chaplains who are who are there. Um, uh, so it's just a, a different kind of care and a different kind of approach. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of volunteers. We, one of the things that I do as a chaplain also is coordinate for people. Sometimes people have their own ministers and they, and we need to figure out how to help them get there and mm -hmm. how to facilitate that for that so, for them. So we do that. We work a lot with volunteers. We work for people's uh, own clergy uh, people and um, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, a professional chaplain simply has a more rigorous course of training and studies and expectations and certifications and should be able to function at a higher um, capacity and quality okay. of care. And also, um, the chaplain works in the hospital. The chaplain wouldn't probably wouldn't come to your house. 
Right, right. So in the hospital setting, we work exclusively in within the walls of the hospital. Now, hospice agencies, um, especially when you have in-home hospice care, the chaplain does visit just like okay. the nurse would, just like the social worker would. The chaplain does visit in-home and work in, in the patient's homes. Um, and I did that for a while. I was a hospice chaplain for some time. Um, but in my current function at the hospital, I work exclusively within the walls of the hospital. Okay. I was just thinking about all that because I was reflecting on when, when my, my dad was very sick before he passed. Mm -hmm. And a hospice person came to our house. And I don't know what this hospice person did. I think she talked to my mom. She didn't really talk to me. Mm -hmm. But uh, we never saw a chaplain. So mm. I just wanted to um, mm. ask for clarification on yeah. that. And who knows? I don't know. Well, that's that unfortunate about the situation, yeah. but yeah, I wish a chaplain had been there to talk yeah. to me, but, um, it is actually a requirement for hospice care to include a chaplain. It's an interdisciplinary, um, agency. Hospices are interdisciplinary agencies in that they have, they have doctors, they have nurses, they have social workers, they have uh, psychologists or counselors and chaplains. So a chaplain should always be available, um, for a hospice patient mm -hmm. and their family. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, to shift gears now, um, did you in any of your training or any or in any volunteer meetings or whatever things you've gone to, do you feel sort of left out at times mm. because your beliefs are different? Mm. That's a great question. Um, the short answer is no. And in fact, I feel very included and not just included for the sake of, oh, let's have diversity but also because I think that um, my colleagues and my cohorts have always found a great deal of value in bringing in different perspectives and different uh, worldviews. And so anytime you have a group of, of professional chaplains or students um, who are from different faith traditions, different cultures, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, it creates for a really rich experience. Um, and so this is a field where you find a lot of interest and desire for um, uh inclusion and representation and openness. Um, so not only do I feel included, um, I feel uh, respected and valued. And a lot of times, even maybe a little bit overutilized, you know, because people really, oh, well, what do you think? Or what does Buddhism have to offer in this case? And um, so uh, I have not yet felt left out. Um, but I'm also uh, just naturally a very um, curious person. And I, I will participate in any religious function or tradition as long as I am allowed and welcomed to. So um, I enjoy being in an interfaith, multi-faith sort of environment as well. I guess um, no matter what the perspective is, somebody needs that, mm -hmm. right? So, of course, if they're doing good work, they should welcome diverse perspectives because Absolutely. somebody needs that. Yeah. I don't know how many people need it, but somebody definitely does. Yeah. So that is important. Yeah. Um, what do you think, how do Buddhist teachings help you in this work? Mm. Oh, I love that question. And um, I think um, personally, uh, Buddhist teachings, Buddhist practice or practices, I should say, have really equipped me and given me the tools and resources to do the work that I do. Um, every day, uh, because I, I work on the palliative care team, so I'm working with people 
who are who have long-term illness, who have chronic illness, who are dealing with really horrible, um, you know, living with horrible illnesses, um, sometimes for very long periods of time. Sometimes they're they're at the end of their life, um, and so I, I end up experiencing a lot of death every day, um, or working with a lot of grief, and that um, that can really take a toll. Um, there's a lot of risk for um, compassion fatigue um, and that kind of thing. Um, but from a Buddhist perspective, um, because I have practiced so much these ideas of impermanence, these practices of, you know, really preparing for the moment of death, um, practicing equanimity, that gives me the, the, the stability of mind um, to be present to people. Um, and that that works whether I'm working with a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist. It's the same thing. I'm able to walk in with a certain, uh, on a good day, with a certain stability of mind and equanimity that allows me to be fully present to their needs and attentive. Um, I also think that even the practice of shamatha, you know, the practice of single-pointed focus, allows me to be a much more uh, attuned listener and empathic listener with patients, and that's really, uh, really essential. It's a really needed quality for for a chaplain to be able to sit with someone, and be present to their grief, be present to their anxiety, be present to their their pain, um, and be able to hold that pain without any. Um, this is this may uh, be relevant to your interest because I get this from Zen, you know, without any grasping for outcomes. There's no no really agenda other than to be present in that very moment. When I walk into a patient's room, I already know that I'm not going to be able to fix anything. Um, my goal is not to cure, but rather to care. So whereas uh, a medical professional is working and dealing in um, facts, I'm dealing and working in truths. Uh, I don't have to worry about black and white, you know, ones and zeros, or, you know, does this get these many milligrams of medicine or not? I'm working there with what is true for the patient right now. And sometimes it's their illness, and sometimes it's the fact that they miss their dog who's been home the whole time they've been in the hospital. Um, so I do believe that Buddhist teachings and practices um, have really equipped me uh, uniquely um, for this work. Okay, I suppose um, my guess is when someone is dying or has a very difficult long illness, and maybe they're not dying anytime soon, but my guess is that what they really need is complete attention. Mm -hmm. And if you're sort of thinking about where you want to be after this, they can see that. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're very subtle and I, I was just envisioning like a chaplain messing with their phone with a patient and that would be really <laughs> shitty. But even if you're very subtle and you're yeah. just wishing you were anywhere else, they can probably tell. Absolutely. So, Anybody can tell that. Yeah. You can tell when somebody doesn't want to be where they are. Yeah. Um, and, and I can tell that, you know, patients don't want to be where they are. Um, so, so yeah, one thing is, um, one, one thing I want when I walk out of a room is for the patient to at least feel that I wanted to be there, um, for however long I was there. But then there are other things that, that patients need or that people need in times like these. Sometimes you need permission to make decisions that don't feel good. You know, oftentimes I'm in a situation where a family is having to decide whether to remove um, a respirator, right? And to move, transition into comfort care. And that can be a very, very trying time for a family. A lot of times there's disagreement. 
a lot of times there's a sense of, of uh, guilt or shame about it. Um, oftentimes, you know, you hear and you see people struggling with, well, am I playing God if I'm removing this support? I don't want to really have this responsibility of having made this decision. And so a lot of times, that's those are the decisions that you're helping people navigate. I don't make decisions for people, but uh, I companion them as they make those decisions. I'm able to ask guiding questions, you know, you know your husband best. What would he want at a time like this? And so to kind of be present to those decisions that they need to make, to kind of give them permission to make those decisions, to claim those decisions. And um, so there's a lot, a lot of, a lot that goes into it. It's never direct though. It's never, I don't think you should pull the plug. It's never that, right? Mm -mm, No, (laughs) I would never ever say that to anyone. Um, In the same, that is in the same category as um, uh, proselytizing. The chaplain never proselytizes. If I walk in there saying, do you have a minute to uh, talk about Buddha? (laughs) You know, that's just, that's not okay. And in the same way, it's not okay to say to someone, oh, you should just unplug. That's just not, not where we are. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think a lot of times when people are struggling with a really difficult decision where really every answer is bad and there's not a good answer, I think sometimes just saying it out loud. Yes. Even if you're just, they're just saying it to you and then then they know what they want to do and you don't mm-hmm. even have to do anything. Is that right? Yeah. I think, um, you know, you mentioned Mason Miller a little bit ago and I have a lot of precious teachings that I that I hold near and dear from hers. But the one that I always have with me is one time, uh, it was one of the first times I was in teachings with her and she starts talking and we all start taking notes and she says, oh, you can put your notebooks away. I'm not going to say anything you don't already know. And that just blew me away. And I was like, but, but how do you know? Maybe. <laughs> and then at the end of that teaching, I was like, oh my gosh, she did not say anything I didn't already know. And however, I needed to hear her say it. It's the same way with patients oftentimes. I don't come in with any agenda. I don't come in with any answers. Um, what I come in with is someone, I am someone that can bear witness, that can be present to them. And then they uh, come, they, they already know what they need to do. They just need to work through it and have someone hear them through it. Um, and that's a lot of times the case. So um, I think that people hear the word chaplain and they immediately think of Christianity, of course, which is understandable because I'm sure the history and we're not going to talk about when chaplaincy was invented because I don't think that's very interesting. But I'm sure historically it's always been a, a Christian person. So you you mentioned that story where you walk in the room and the guy thinks you're going to immediately try to sell him the Bible or whatever. Yeah. So. Um, I wanted to ask, there's definitely baggage around the word chaplain. Would you like to replace it with something else? Oh, I wish that we could. I would love to replace um, that word. Um, I love being a chaplain, but I don't love the title chaplain because for that precise reason, people have already kind of a fixed idea of what a chaplain is. And it typically is a a Christian um, idea of chaplaincy. Uh, Sometimes they think it's a priest. Um, here's the other thing that happens when you come in and you say, I'm the chaplain, people get scared because they think, oh, you're here to give me bad news. (laughs) Right. Um, so it can be an unsettling, it can be off-putting. And in this day and age, when really most of the people that I'm serving are not really even churchy or, you know, 
don't identify as religious. Sometimes maybe they identify as spiritual, but not necessarily. Um, you say, I'm the chaplain, and they immediately assume, well, I don't need you because I'm not religious. Um, so I would love the, for there to be a different word. And sometimes I, the work that I do really is spiritual care. So I'm a spiritual caregiver. But that just doesn't have quite the ring. You know, hi, I'm a spiritual caregiver. It just sounds a little strange. Um, when I say chaplain, you kind of get a better idea of what it is that I am, but not quite. Um, I have a good friend who actually was trained at Upaya, um, and her name is Minnie and she, or Minander, and she always said that she would rather introduce herself as an existentialist clinician. And that completely <laughs> captures what it is that I do. I am an existentialist clinician, but that'll never take off. <laughs> that <laughs> name will never take off. That's precisely what we do. We deal with questions of meaning uh, and meaning making, and we deal with questions of, you know, life and death. Um, and emotions and feelings. And um, so we're definitely existentialist clinicians. Um, but I think for the time being, um, the word chaplain is pretty much sticking. When I introduce myself, when I walk into a room, usually I say, hi, I'm Sergio. I'm from Spiritual Wellness. Um, and so I very rarely introduce myself as a chaplain, although it's on my badge. It says mm -hmm. chaplain. Um, but yeah, good question. Does it happen a lot that Oh, it probably doesn't, that people find out you're Buddhist at work and they start asking you a bunch of questions about Buddhism? Does yes. that happen a lot? Not a lot, but it does happen, and I love it when it does. You know, when I walk into a room, my priority is to center the patient. Um, I am walking in with everything that I am and who I am, and that includes the fact that I'm a Buddhist, but I am there to serve the patient, to serve the family, so I always try to really center them. Um, but oftentimes in conversation, they will ask, so what, what denomination are you? And I'll say, well, I'm actually not a denomination. I'm Buddhist. And then they'll say, oh, and, and, um, uh, one time this was my favorite, uh, this patient, she said, oh my goodness, you're a Buddhist. I've always wanted to learn more about Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. And I said, Buddhism, <laughs> um, I don't know what Buddhism is, but let's talk about it. And she had a lot of great questions and we had a lovely discussion um, so, yeah, it does happen from time to time that people want to know more about Buddhism. And then I always try to find a way to bring it back to them. You know, what does that mean to you? You know, to think about, you know, questions of the mind, questions about impermanence, questions of compassion, um, loving kindness, um, but to bring it back to them. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, what would you say is your least favorite part about your job? Or do you have one? Um, I, I, I'm sure I do. There are things that I'd rather not be involved in. Um, I think one of the well, you know, I often have to be present when news are, is being delivered about, you know, a pretty hopeless situation or a situation where um, it's just news that nobody wants to hear. Um, and I actually like being there for that because I want the family and the patient to feel that somebody is standing there with them, that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And that, and that although there's no way I could possibly know what it's like for them, at least I'm there. So I like being there for that. Um, I've had a lot of meaningful moments, uh, during deaths, you know, just holding a patient's hand as they're dying. Um, you know, being right next to someone as they're seeing their loved one die. Um, so the things that you might expect are actually, not things I dislike. 
probably um, some of the, uh, you know, we have to be very careful with legal issues and ethical issues. And so um, the fact that I have to have really clearly defined boundaries can sometimes be a bit of a chore. Um, you know, oftentimes, if you, especially if you're working with a family for over the course of a few weeks, you know, you develop a connection and they want to have an outside relationship too, you know, come, come, come to our house sometime or we should have you over for dinner. Those are the things that I just can't do. And so I hate the fact that I have to say, you know, can't do that. Sometimes they're very, they're, they are so grateful and they want to give you a gift and you can't accept the gift. So the boundaries that we have to set in order to be ethical and legal and protect, you know, the patient's information and confidentiality, all of those things are things that have to be in place and unfortunately make it so that sometimes you have to be um, a little cold about things like you, that. You can't go to the funeral. Is that right? Often I have actually done funerals of patients and that is okay. Um, what I can't really do is, um, you know, uh, represent the hospital um, outside of the hospital or be, or be in a continuing like, um, spiritual direction or counseling sort of situation with someone. Um, usually I, I just refer them to someone else for that and make it very clear. I work at the hospital, but, uh, I have been invited to, um, to do the funeral of, a, of there's one patient in particular I'm thinking about that was really meaningful. And so I worked with my supervisor and my, um, and, and the director and made sure that that was okay. And that does happen often because oftentimes people in the hospital don't really have clergy um, or a home church or a community, spiritual community, but they still need to have a ceremony. And mm -hmm. so they oftentimes they, they ask a chaplain to do it and we can do that. We just can't get paid for it. Okay. Yeah. Do you like give hugs and stuff? With, with permission and consent. Um, that is very important. Uh -huh. Human touch is absolutely essential to spiritual care. Um, there's, uh, when somebody is sitting at the bedside and their loved one is going to die imminently and they're just consumed in grief, there, there's something really powerful about putting your hand on their shoulder. Um, but I always want to make sure that number one, that they feel safe, that they have agency, um, and that they, they're okay with it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Human touch is really important and it is part of spiritual care. When people ask me to pray for them or with them, um, I oftentimes will invite them to hold hands and we'll hold hands. Um, so, yeah, um, I do believe, uh, especially in my practice, which is very embodied, I do believe that human touch um, is important and essential. But we do have to make sure that people always feel a sense of safety and agency and that they that they can refuse um, and change their mind if, if and so... And sometimes people just go for it and hug me. So I just hug them back. Um, but yeah. Okay. So do you, um, is this a 40 hour a week job? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and what are the hours like? So because I'm a resident, part of my time is spent um, doing classwork or study or research. And part of my, half of my time is spent doing clinical work. So working with patients. Um, when I'm do, on days that I'm doing clinical work, I usually begin uh, with morning report with the other chaplains. We talk about what the night was like. There's always an on-call chaplain. And so, and we talk about what we might expect for the day. If there are referrals um, for different chaplains, that happens. And then immediately after that, I go to palliative care team 
rounds. And that's where I meet with the social worker and the nurse practitioners for the palliative care team. And we talk about the patients on our census list and who we need to prioritize, who we're going to go see, what family meetings we're going to have. Um, that's also the time when they will say to me, I met with this patient yesterday. I think they could really benefit from a visit from you. And so that's kind of where I get my, um, my order of the day. And then immediately after that, I go and start visiting with patients um, or their families um, in, the, in the different units of the hospital. Um, so that's kind of what that looks like from, you know, around 8.30 to 4.30. Okay, so it is, it is traditional work hours. Yes, um, and then about every other week I'll be on call overnight, which means that I go and I'm at the hospital uh, overnight. And so we have a sleep room. We're there to respond to all codes and uh, emergencies and traumas and that kind of thing. Okay. So um, how long is your residency going to last? A residency typically is one year um, or three units of clinical pastoral education. Um, I'm coming up. Mine will end in April. And, uh, and then after that, I'm considering a couple of other options. Um, so this is my second residency. Um, and uh, I just, uh, I guess I can't quit education. I, I really <laughs> love. I, it's really interesting for me because I absolutely love the, the work with patients and families. Um, but I also really love the scholarship side of it too, the academic part of it and the research and the education. So um, this is the best of both worlds for me. Okay. So when that residency is over, you may either, you may work in this hospital system or you may take a job in some other. Right. There's a lot of hospitals. Well, I guess there's probably a lot of hospitals everywhere. There's a lot of hospitals in Kansas City you mm -hmm. can go to. Yeah, um, that's right. And they all need chaplains. So in a typical day when you're not in class, you have a series of meetings in the morning mm -hmm. and then you go and you meet with patients. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole day. Yeah. So every time I visit with a patient or the family, um, you know, after I have a visit and I do an assessment and there's some interventions and I also have to document all of that. So I, uh, I create a, or I enter a chart note in, in their chart. And so there's a lot of documentation involved in this work. Um, every time I visit with a family or a patient, um, I, I report on what I did. Um, because that's also really helpful to the interdisciplinary team. The nurses will read those notes, the, the social workers will read those notes, and then that's how we work together to provide the best holistic care for the patient. So um, I have asked you about how Buddhism makes you a better chaplain, mm -hmm. but now I want to ask you if you think chaplaincy makes you a better Buddhist. Ooh. And That's a great question. A follow-up to that is, does chaplaincy make you better about talking about Buddhism? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Well, as you know, as a Mahayanist, um, the Bodhisattva ideal is kind of my guiding principle um, to really uh, do my best to bring about um, liberation from suffering, uh, to bring about um, peace and loving kindness and equanimity and happiness. Um to those around me. So um, as a chaplain, I get to do that every day, every day, every time I enter a room, every time I meet with someone, I have an opportunity to alleviate suffering. And oftentimes what that looks like is listening. Other times what that looks like is bringing a cup of coffee. Um, sometimes what that looks like is helping someone make a difficult decision or giving a hug. Um, so 
I do believe that um, that chaplaincy. I don't know if it makes me a better Buddhist. I don't. I don't know that I could be a better or worse Buddhist. Uh, I, I just try my best. But I do think that it gives me a lot of opportunities to put the Dharma into practice. Um, and so I love that. I love that every day I get to go home and say, "Well, today I, I helped someone a little bit, um, or I was present for someone." Um, and I, in a way, I, I try to alleviate someone's suffering. And so that's the Bodhisattva ideal. Um, and I think it does. Um, does it? Does chaplaincy help me talk about um, Buddhism? I think so. I think um, I think a lot of times um, I love to talk about Buddhism and to study Buddhism in ways that feel very practical. If I can't put it into practice, um, I lose interest. I, I'm not a very academically inclined Buddhist. I don't love reading a lot of philosophy or commentary. Um, I love taking the teachings and doing my best. In this lifetime, I don't have the gift of, uh, you know, academic um, achievement uh, or scholarship. I'm not a philosopher. Um, and so what it does is it does make me be able to say, this is what Dharma looks like in practice. Being there for someone, hospitality, that's Dharma. Um, loving kindness, that's Dharma. Presence, being absolutely present, that's Dharma. Um, today I did the homeless outreach route, and for me that's a great opportunity to practice Dharma. Give somebody something unconditionally without expectation for outcome. Or So yeah, I, I think in a nutshell, um, I guess you could say that chaplaincy makes me a better Buddhist. I don't know if it does. I think it makes me practice what I uh, preach or think uh, a lot more. Um, and yeah, I love it. I guess at work every day, you have this opportunity to practice compassion mm -hmm. every day, day after day after mm -hmm. day after day directly. So other people may have jobs where they're indirectly practicing compassion. I, at my job, I'm looking at paperwork. I'm not talking to a person in person that needs help, right? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at, I'm trying to help people, but I'm also, I'm looking at letters. Like it's not the same. It's not direct. So I think it doesn't stimulate the same, yeah, the same part of the brain, but so I think that's really meaningful to be able to just um, practice compassion every single day. Mm -hmm. Is it is it a chore sometimes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm human like anyone mm -hmm. else, and sometimes I get out of a, a particularly difficult visit. And I'm like, I'm done for the day. I don't want to see anyone else. I have my own problems. <laughs> I can't listen to someone else's problems right now. And that's and I also think that's compassionate because that's compassionate for myself. You know, like um, most practitioners hopefully do, compassion has to begin with yourself. Mm -hmm. If you can't have compassion for yourself, how can you possibly expect to have compassion for anyone else? So, um, yeah, there's plenty of times where I don't feel very compassionate, but uh, in the greater picture, perhaps I am being compassionate. Um, I, one of my favorite quotes, I don't know if it's misattributed or not, but His Holiness the Dalai Lama is meant to have said something along the lines of um, compassion really is kind of selfish because you feel good when you're helping others or you're doing something for someone else. And so you're actually kind of making yourself feel good, but that's okay. <laughs> so I don't, for whatever that means uh, or whatever that, uh, that can help. Yeah. I like how you said, I don't know if it's misattributed because I think <laughs> these days, whenever I see any Buddhist quote anywhere, I always think, okay, well, what book's that from? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I think, yeah, there's weird, 
there's weird there's this website called fake buddha quotes.com I, I go to it yeah at least yeah two, twice a week <laughs> fake buddha has some wise things to say but it hasn't been <laughs> it hasn't been updated in a while but yeah i love that so i wanted to talk about what you said about um teachings being applicable to mm-hmm. real life mm-hmm. because i think that's very important <clears throat> yes i strive to think of things that are useful only Mm -hmm. because I think that if we got, get caught up just in, we could easily because of all the material out there, we could get caught up in this really high minded philosophy and start talking about, you know, dependent origination and no self. And we can get really, it can get really confusing and weird and it feels like it's not very useful. Yeah. And I think that my main purpose, one of our, purposes as Buddhists is to kind of just as people who share Buddhism is to just show people something that will help them maybe not go to the bar every night because they're suffering so much. That's what, that's what I tend to think. I think a lot of people come to Buddhism because they want to hear complicated philosophy, but a lot more people come to it just because they can't relax. They're fighting with their job too much and they just can't think of anything else to do and they're stuck. So I think that useful things are very important and Mm -hmm. that we can get lost very easily. Yeah. Yeah. But even, um, and, and I, I, I mean, I am a Buddhist. I, I try my best to follow the Dharma. I believe in the Dharma and the Sangha and the Buddha. And for me, those are really important. Uh, you know, the four noble truths and the eightfold path and all of these numbers and lists, actually have a lot of meaning for me because I see a lot of practical applications. So even when you talk about dependent origination, there's a way in which you can get really, um, really philosophical and really ontological and all of these things about those teachings. But when it, when you bring it down to the human level, what it means is that because you are, I am, and that what I do has an impact or an effect on what you do, we are connected. We are interconnected. And I think that most people are able to understand that and see why that's why it's important to reflect on that, to meditate on that, and to try to live your life in a way that is um, aware of that. Um, so I think all of these things are important. I think all of the, the teachings are important. Um, what I All I'm saying is that I, I, I am not very um, drawn to, to debate or discussion or scholarship in that regard, but the teachings have had a really profound impact on me. Um, the four measurables in particular is a practice that I do every day, you know, and when I walk into a patient's room, when I walk into a situation where there's a lot of stress or a lot of grief, um, it is so important to walk in with an attitude of equanimity. Everybody else is freaking out. Somebody hopefully should be able to walk in and sit and look at the bigger picture and say, all right, things are really shitty right now. What are we going to do with this and have a more responsive rather than reactive attitude that comes from the Dharma. You know, so uh, yeah, to me, practical application is important. Also to remember that we are still in the relative level, right? This, we are in samsara. Um, it's a lot of times there's a temptation to focus on the absolute, um, absolute and live in the space of absolute truth, but we're still dealing with, with the nitty gritty of samsara and the relative truth. Um, so that's where I spend most of my time. I call, um, I call this phenomenon I've seen on the internet 
zensplaining mm. is what I call it. Mm. And that is when if you say anything, somebody says, well, yes, but actually reality is not real. <laughs> and so this ocean of suffering does not exist. Yeah. And you're just like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you're trying to sound smart. That's what it is. Yeah. You're trying to sound smart and it doesn't really help anyone. Yeah. And I've seen that online. I don't, I don't suggest talking about Buddhism in Facebook groups, even though I do it, because <laughs> there is that small contingent of people yeah. who will just try to make you think they're smart and try to tell you that nothing is real. Well, okay, nothing is real, but if I stub my toe, I'm not going to say, lo, nothing is real. No pain yeah. is entering my body. I'm going to say, shit, ow! Yeah. So I think we have to meet people where they are and work with what we have rather than... I think that that is key, meeting people where they are. When I walk into a room and somebody is completely falling apart because their 98-year-old grandmother is dying, in my mind, I'm thinking, she's had a really long life. She's had a good life. And look, she's surrounded by her family. She can have a good death. Now, am I going to say that? Of course not, because I'm gonna get, I should get kicked out of the room for saying <laughs> that, right? What I need to be attentive to is where that person is. And they're, they are grieving very uh, profoundly that they're no longer going to see their grandmother. They're no longer going to hear her voice. They're no longer going to, you know, be with her. Um, and is that, sh should I say, well, this is not even real to begin with? Of course not. For them, this is absolutely real. And for me too. Um, so yeah, you have to meet people where they are. And sometimes you meet people who are like, you know, she's had a great life. She's ready to go. This is great. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's, move Let's into, do it. Move into comfort care. She'll be fine. She, this is what she would have wanted. And we're all here. And we are celebrating her life. And so you have to meet people where they are. Where they are. Um, and my, uh, my own beliefs, my own practices are not anybody else's. So I never uh, try to impose that on anyone. Um, I don't, yeah, I, that sense planning thing is a little... Um, obnoxious. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you, uh, we're almost at the end of our discussion, uh -huh. and I want to ask you if you have a favorite Buddhist story or teaching. Mm. And if so, I would like to hear it. Story or teaching? Uh, I have a lot uh, of favorites, so I guess I don't have one favorite. But um, let me let me think for, about this for a moment. Um I've been working a lot with this um, notion of impermanence in my daily practice. And I have no idea where this story comes from, probably from fake Buddha. But um, there's this, you've heard this story before, uh, the student comes to the teacher and is complaining that their meditation practice is horrendous. And the teacher says, it will pass. And then the student comes back the next week and has had a wonderful week, great stability of mind, feeling a lot of insight and really feeling very developed in their practice and the teacher says it will pass right so um, that to me is a story about um, really about equanimity in the face of impermanence um, this has been very meaningful to me because um, it allows me when something is really wonderful if I'm having a delicious meal with someone um, or just having a very joyous moment to be able to enjoy it absolutely and be happy but know that it's impermanent and enjoy it because it's impermanent and also be okay when it's over. Um, and at the same time, when there is grief, when there is uh, loss, when there is pain, 
to say, look, this is this is very real. This pain is with us right now, but it's not going to be here forever. Um, so be present to it, but don't get caught up in it. Um, so I love that. That's a good teaching for me on impermanence, this constant reminder um, that, uh, that all things have a beginning and a middle and an end. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Um, so I think that's what I'm thinking about today. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll have a different one. Um, okay. But yeah. I, we tend to think that things will last forever sometimes, uh, good so things or bad things. We tend to think they'll last forever, and yeah. we're always wrong. Yeah. Well, diamonds are forever, so there's that. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for coming over today. Thank it's you, It's been a great discussion. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.